Welcome to today's episode of PWGC's Environmental Echo Podcast. Joining me today is PWGC President and CEO, Paul Boyce, and Senior Engineer, Dan Surgison, who will be discussing geothermal energy today. I'm Nick Anastasi, Marketing Director at PWGC. If you'd like to listen to this podcast at a later time, you can go to our website at pwgrocer.com backslash podcast, or look at our social media. Gentlemen, welcome to today's podcast. Today we're going to be discussing geothermal energy, and if you could just very quickly explain to our listeners what that means. Yeah, sure. Good morning, and thank you, Nick. Uh, Dan, I, I'll jump in on this one just to start, and we'll get you in this as soon as possible. But geothermal energy, it's, uh, you know, no pun intended, it's a hot topic lately. It has been for a while, and uh, yeah, as, you know, things become more sustainable, you know, people are looking for alternative energy. Uh, this is one of the forms that people are starting to really uh, grasp onto, investigate, and, and have really expressed an interest in. So, you know, you break it down, geo and thermal, right? Geo meaning earth, thermal meaning heat. So it's geothermal. It's like basically the earth, heat, energy type of thing. So essentially what we're using is the, the earth, the ground, right. and the groundwater as a heat source and a heat sink for heating and cooling of buildings. Um, there's many different types of geothermal. Um, but the, the one we're actually using, it's, it's more of a, a um, ground source heat pump type of application as opposed mm-hmm. to like hot rock geothermal, which I'll just take a second to explain that. Um, that's if you, you drill down far enough into the earth, you're going to get like superheated water, right. you know, real hot stuff, superheated steam. Hot springs. Yep. And you'll, you'll bring that up to the surface, that really, really hot steam uh, to turn a, t- a turbine mm-hmm. all right, under pressure. And that generates electricity. That's also a geothermal energy type of application. But what we're going to focus on today is that that ground source heat pump, you know, um, a geo exchange, if you will. Like I said, we're going to transfer heat from the earth into a building or vice versa. We'll take that heat out of the building to cool it and put it into the earth. Okay. So essentially, that's what we're going to be, you know, the, the, the basis of our discussion today is, you know, what different types of um, geothermal systems are there, you know, how they're applicable, um, who uses them, you know, um, some of the efficiencies you can get from them, you know, why people are looking at them from a sustainability standpoint and mm-hmm. energy savings and, and all that other fun stuff. Dan, you want to add anything to that? Um, well, thanks for having me. And uh, I guess just to add to that, um, geothermal systems specifically using ground source heat pumps like you just mentioned, um, they fit really well with our hydrogeology on Long Island. Um, the operating temperatures of a geothermal heat pump are essentially within about 40 degrees Fahrenheit, 80 degrees Fahrenheit, depending on the time of the year, which mm-hmm. we'll get into a bit. But um, Long Island has generally a temperature below grade of about 55 to 60 okay. degrees. So we're right in the middle of that range here. So in essence, the, the, the average temperature, that 55 degrees, whether it's the summer or whether it's the winter, is what enables this approach to work and uh, for, for facilities here on the island. Um, for argument's sake, do we, if you if you begin to, and I know we're gonna get into the details of how these systems work and how they go into the ground, so to speak, but to look at these systems and say, okay, if we bring that 55 degree temperature, is that correct? Mm-hmm. To the surface and it's the summertime, that's wonderful because you can use that to cool the facility. And in the, in the wintertime, you can bring that up and you only have to heat it up a certain amount to enable it to heat the facility. Am I correct in that? Dan? Yes. Yes, I would say so. Um, I mean, the beauty of the heat pumps is you can heat and cool with 55-degree mm-hmm. water. Um, 
it does change throughout the year depending on what type of system you have, which we could get into whether it's an open loop or closed mm -hmm. loop system. Closed loop systems generally have to pay a lot more attention to the temperature of the fluid in the pipe that you're circulating between mm -hmm. the equipment in the house or the building and the, um, the, the heat exchanger that's buried in the ground. And before we get into the specific types of systems, um, Paul, we had had, we had a, a podcast not too long ago that discussed issues related to groundwater. Mm -hmm. Do these systems necessarily impact uh, groundwater here on Long Island? Since it is, you know, we are a sole source aquifer, and um, obviously it's very important that we maintain and protect that that resource. Um, do these systems impact that water in any way? They they have the potential to if you don't install and operate them properly. Um, you know, one type of system is an open loop where we actually use groundwater. You know, we're going to pump the water out of the earth, mm -hmm. groundwater out of the earth, into a building through, like, say, a heat exchange device and then back into the earth. So if it picks up any contaminants once it goes into the building, say there's a, a, a leak uh, with, with the building side and, and there's any type of refrigerants or, or coolants or, or whatever, you know, antifreezes, that sort of thing, and you pick that up and put it back into the, the earth, certainly, you know. Um, but... You know, there, there are ways to mitigate that, you know, by having separate building loops from the ground loop, um, you know, counter current, non-contact heat exchangers. Obviously, we're not mixing the waters. Uh, you need, you know, and, and you've got to operate it effectively, you know, make sure you're not losing pressure, temperature stain, you know, there, there's a whole bunch of ways to see if something's going wrong, if you're maintaining it. And the other thing is to make sure you're designing it properly. Now, the other side of things is a closed loop. Right. We're, we're not pumping groundwater, we're circulating a, a fluid inside closed like black polyethylene piping you know that's sim very similar to the piping that you might see in, a, in a, a front yard lawn sprinkler system you know below below the surface there um, that may have in it not just water but it may have some sort of um, you know antifreeze type of solution because when it's in the winter it's we're cooling that stuff down we're taking heat out of it uh, and it can get you know you don't want it to freeze you don't want it to get viscous you know stuff like that uh, and if those pipes leak obviously you know it would go out into the you know subsurface make its way into the aquifer system and again you can keep an eye on how it's operating through pressure temperature uh, flows you know that sort of thing uh, but the big big thing with that is um, you know quality control while you're installing the system right. you know make sure you, you're installing it right it's a it's a liquid tight system um, once you put it in the earth as long as it's not disturbed that stuff is basically inert plastic right. you know nothing should happen to it we put it below the frost line you know um, as, long as long as no one digs it up or, or you know goes down and hits it somehow it should not leak okay and Dan, is, is, are there any regulatory uh, requirements that are associated with getting approval for these systems? Um, they're starting to catch up to that. I know in Suffolk County there's a, a geothermal model code that the town goes by. They don't necessarily enforce it, but we try to stick to that model code when we design these closed-loop systems and open-loop systems. But, uh, for example, I know they want them, like, say, 10 feet from the property line, um, a few feet away. I believe it's 25 feet from on-site catch basins, septic systems, stuff like that. Okay. Um, there's an important one, I believe, you know, if you want to do an open-loop system, say, out east, you need to be at least 100 feet away from somebody else's existing supply well, whether they use it for irrigation or it's unlikely they use it for drinking water. But uh, regardless of the purpose of a neighboring well, um, they want to make sure that these systems are spaced out uh, between lot and okay. lot. Okay, understood. If I, let me just add to that. There are some regulations at the state level, like if you are a, like an open loop system on Long Island, if you're going to go above 45 gallons a minute, 
in you know how much water you water you're withdrawing. You need a Long Island well permit. Uh, there's also the Department of Mineral Resources at the state level. If you do a geothermal system that's over 500 feet deep, mm-hmm. you've got a permit with them, whether it's open loop, closed loop, a standing column, any type of system. So there is some state regulatory stuff, but um, in terms of, you know, how much water can I pump, how many boreholes can I put in, there's really no regulation on that. Um, okay. As Dan mentioned, there is some model code where it dictates like setbacks between, say, the property line and sanitary systems and, and a few other things, but um, it's not overly regulated. Understood. Understood. And the state also, uh, just to throw it out there, because Paul had mentioned it, the antifreeze that you would put in, say, a closed-loop system, um, that is dictated by the state. So you could do like propylene glycol is a common right. one. Um, there's methanol, ethanol. There's other ones that New York does not allow, okay. but it's a state-by-state thing. Understood. Understood. Now, in the application of this technology, I know that we at PWGC have worked across uh, across uh, the region from, for argument's sake, from Manhattan to Montauk. Can you guys tell me how this technology is applied? I know that we've done some work in New York City for some significant projects, and we've done some work out here on the island for some significant projects. Um can you explain to our listeners uh, how we apply this technology in these those differing regions? Sure, Dan. You want to start? Go ahead. Um, sure. I mean, I guess I'll start west and work my way east. So that works. Uh, you know, starting in Manhattan, I know we we've done back in 2014, 2015, St. Patrick's Cathedral, which I believe we will have a dedicated podcast to at some point in the future. Um, but the way that system works, uh, it's a standing column well system. Okay. Uh, there's 10 standing column wells surrounding the existing cathedral. Um, there's, they're all different depths. They range from, I believe, 750 feet, the shallowest one, all the way down to 2,200 plus. Correct. Um, and I remember I, w- I was actually out there part of putting the, the drawings together, but also doing a lot of the oversight, because um, that's very important, uh, just to make sure you um, see see the drilling in action, see how the contractor's installing everything. But I guess the short of it is um, a standing column well, it's an open loop, or I'm sorry, it's an open rock borehole. Um, contractor will drill one of those 10 wells from you know where you stand at the church level all the way down as deep as 2,200 feet, like I mentioned. Um, that borehole throughout is, I believe, 10 inch diameter from top to bottom. And then there's a uh, PVC pipe it's called a shroud, um, six inches in diameter, so it fits within that mm-hmm. that um, borehole that was drilled. That six-inch PVC has uh, perforations, one-inch perforations in the sides of uh, of it, only in the lowest about hundred feet of it, maybe fifty feet of it, um, to allow water to pass through it. And then, just for argument's sake, you could put a four-inch diameter uh, submersible pump and motor within that six-inch PVC. So if you could picture it, you know, you, ha- you turn this pump on, it's going to pump groundwater um, mm-hmm. up to the mechanical room of the church through a plate frame heat exchanger. Um, and then it's going to come back in a return pipe. And this return pipe goes in what's called the annular space mm-hmm. of the standing column wall. The annular space is the very narrow space between the eight-inch uh, drilled hole and the six inch uh, PVC. And then once that water gets returned below the water table, if, you know, 100 feet down, maybe deeper than that, um, that allows the water to go all the way down 
2,000 feet, whatever that specific well is, and then um, goes through those one-inch perforations in the six-inch PVC and comes all the way back up to the pump and repeats the process. Um, and at St. Pat's, they have a series of uh, heat pumps, chillers, all different kinds of equipment, but um, essentially it's using those 10 wells. The mechanical system in the church is using those 10 wells to uh, heat and cool simultaneously um, throughout the year. Okay. Now, on that type of system, since we're, we're understanding column well, um, actually, I think this question would probably apply across the board, is what does applying geothermal technology to the heating or cooling of a facility um, allow you to remove from a given site? Do oil burners, uh, other types of uh, uh, internal infrastructure in a facility, does that free up space? Does that enable uh, lower expenses for energy costs? What? Please get into that. Discuss. Well, by all means. <laughs> you know, you could start with the cooling side of things. You know, a lot of facilities may have a cooling tower, right? right? You, you've seen those things. They're, they're, they're outdoors, obviously. They're up on a rooftop or they could be on the ground. But uh, let's say a, a building in the city, it's, it's generally on the rooftop, you know. Um, they're large. Mm -hmm. They're noisy. Uh, they generate a lot of vibrations. Um, they often at times will have those vapor plumes coming mm -hmm. off them. They are known to be, you know, issues for Legionella. And we, that's, that could be a whole nother podcast, but, um, you know, that's... Uh, I wasn't going to go there, but no, I was no, thinking that's it. No, that's <laughs> a back, bacteriological problem. Um, and they also, uh, a lot of energy yep. to run those things. You know, there's pumps and fans and, and all that fun stuff. Um, and they can make noise too, all right, with the fans. With the geothermal system, you remove that, you know. Uh, you, you get rid of all that mechanical equipment associated with it. You, you get rid of that Legionella risk, mm -hmm. the noise, the vapor plume, the vibrations, um, the space it takes up. So it's it's aesthetics, you know. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't have to see this thing. Everything we're doing is below the ground, is out right. of sight, out of mind. You know, you can build stuff over the top of a lot of these geothermal systems. Um, and, and then you talk about the energy efficiency, you know. The, the geothermal system's a more efficient energy system as well. You know, we're going to use less energy to do the same type of, you know, essentially the same thing. Cool. Right. You know, and, and you talked about, you know, oil burners or what we would call boilers or, you know, heat, you know, whatever type of heating equipment. It's the same thing. Um, we can get rid of or remove a lot of that stuff or replace it with geothermal systems. So, again, now we're inside the building. The mechanicals, you don't have that mechanical space. Uh, again, using a lot less energy. We are not burning a fossil fuel, mm -hmm. you know, like a gas or a, uh, you know, I'm not going to say coal, but oil or something along those lines. So, we don't, you know, less carbon emissions. You know, the, the, the benefits of the geothermal system are, are many over mm -hmm. those types of, you know, traditional or conventional heating and cooling systems. Right. Now, the other side is, is, you know, what's the drawback to geothermal? Oftentimes, it's the capital cost. Right. Uh, it may cost a little bit more, sometimes a lot more, to install a system like this. Uh, as, as Dan was pointing out, we're dealing, we could be drilling very deep holes in some very difficult places. Uh, and it's, you know, the price per foot for drilling, you know, and it's, it can be difficult. Uh, and as I said, a little more expensive. Um, but then you look at the, the energy savings, you know. Mm -hmm. Sometimes these systems, if you run them right, you can see, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60 plus percent energy efficiency over your traditional systems. So you look at, you know, what's my return on my investment? You know, when do I break even versus right. the, the capital, the more money I had to pay to build this thing. And, and then when am I in the, you know, in the black here, what am I saving? Right. You know, and, and that happens, you know, it depends on the, the, the system, the difficulties with installing it. You know, I mean, and these payback periods can be anywhere from a, a couple of years to, you know, to 10, 11, 12 plus right. years, depending on the size and magnitude. Um, you know, so that's that's the drawback generally. 
Uh, and also it does take up a little bit of space, you know, right. in the ground, you know, and I said we can build some stuff over the top of these things, maybe like a parking lot. Uh, a lot of places in the city now are trying to build buildings over them. You know, um, if you have an open loop system you, you, and you have wells with pumps, right. as Dan described, you, you don't want to put, you know, stuff over the top of them because we are going to need to access those right. wells eventually. Right. Um, you know, it's a mechanical device down there. It's a pump. It's not going to last forever. You know, we've had some systems on the east end of Long Island that still have the original pumps from, gosh, 20-plus years ago at this right. point. Blew my mind, you know. Um, but eventually, a mechanical device is going to fail. Yep. You know, so the same thing with any of your traditional boilers or condensers, right. chillers, you know, whatever else devices are going to be in, the, in, a, in a building or a cooling tower even. You know, stuff's going to wear out, break down, and have to be replaced or repaired. Right. In, in, in our experience at, at PWGC... Um, I know we have uh, both um, analyzed and designed systems for across the region. Uh, but one of the things that I think that we should touch on is the importance of assessment in terms of determining the applicability of a geothermal system to a given facility. Can you guys delve into that? Sure. We um, One of the services we offer are geothermal feasibility studies where um, we would essentially take a look at a uh, proposed site for a client. Um, you know, we would think of uh, a lot of factors go into it, but mainly, um, you know, what are the heating and cooling loads of the building? Where is the building physically located? Uh, how accessible is the groundwater? Um, what is the quality of the groundwater? How accessible are drillers um, to that area? Um, the permitting requirements of that specific area, I know we, t we touched on them a little bit, but it can change based on where you are um, in the state, but, uh, you know, across the U.S. Um, and we take into account weather data, a couple of, you know, the construction of the proposed building, a um, lot, of, lot of things even beyond that. Right. Um, and then the outcome of this exercise would be, you know, which geothermal system is, is best for your site. Um, it could be a standing column well, mm -hmm. like I described, St. Patrick's Cathedral having. I mean, that's commonly found in New York City because of the geology. There's a lot of uh, competent rock there. That's what you want to install a standing column well in. Mm -hmm. um, but there's also the open loop systems that have supply wells that pump groundwater, diffusion wells that return th that groundwater to the water table once it's passed through the building and the heat exchanger. And then there's also the closed loop systems that, um, you know, they're a little more bulletproof than the others, uh, as you don't have to worry about water quality so much, um, and you could uh, you have a, more control in those types of systems. So, um, the design process for the for the closed loop systems, you have to. Um, there's a lot more design work involved in that uh, in terms of balancing the heating and cooling loads. Um, you know, for example. If you have a facility that has a lot of cooling, cooling dominant facility, you use more air conditioning over the course of a year than you do heating. Right. Um, with a closed loop system, over time, if you don't balance those loads and you continue to, you know, cool your facility all summer, you know, into spring and fall as well, and then not heat it so much during the winter, the ground temperature that you're um, system is installed in, the ground will literally heat up over time, year after year, to a point where your air conditioning will stop working at some point. Right. Um, so our geothermal feasibility studies kind of cover um, the pros and cons of each, but uh, will also kind of custom fit for the client what would work best for them 
um, both in terms of efficiency and practicality, constructability, um, return on investment, you know, the financials of it as well. So um, there, there's a lot that, that goes into um, determining w what is best for a facility. And a lot of it does have to do with uh, the purpose of the building. What are right. they going to be doing with it? Will it be changing over time? Right. Uh, things like that that even the client may not know right off the bat. So, Are, are there instances where this technology is inappropriate for uh, application. Nick, I was going to jump in and say it's not one size fits all. Right. The earth isn't a black box. Uh, we have had clients that want to, you know, build a significant structure on a piece of property that's, you know, I'm not going to say postage stamp size, but it's pretty small. Mm -hmm. You know, there's literally only so much load we can get into the ground before, right. like Dan said, things start to become imbalanced or we just can't do the entire facility. We look at maybe just a partial geothermal system and, and combine it with some of the traditional stuff and make a hybrid system. Mm -hmm. But there are times where you may have constraints where this just isn't going to work. Um, let's just say we don't have room for a closed loop and standing columns out because we don't have a rock um, type of situation. Um, then we would look at, you know, water quality. You know, for an open loop, and you just may have absolutely water quality that's not going to work here. You might have a lot of dissolved iron or manganese, or you know, there could be other issues. There could be contamination nearby that's affecting you. Um, you know, that's a as, as we say, a, a showstopper, right? Mm -hmm. Then a game over. You know yeah. that that we would tell the client, this is not going to work. Don't do it. You know, even though they have their heart set on being, you know, environmentally responsive, or responsible and sustainable, and they, right. you know, they're looking forward to an energy savings, but there, there may be reasons that this is not a good idea to do. Uh, otherwise, there could be other reasons, like there could be neighboring geothermal systems right next right. door. They could be surrounded and they're in a, a thermal plume. Right. You know, what am I going to do then? You know, right. it, it, as we said, it's a little bit unregulated in that respect. It's like the Wild West, the pioneers, right. the first guy to get there to stake the turf, you know. Can you go deeper? Is there room to go deeper? What's the geology like? You know, there may be geological conditions. We may have just clay or something that's not going to produce right. water or not be very good for, say, like a, a closed-loop system. You know, so th so there are reasons to this This may not work, and that's what you try to, you know, vet out in this, this feasibility study process as well. You know, what are the constraints? What's going to make this thing a, a, a non-starter? You know, um, also that you, you, at this point, you also look at the, the payback period, and, and the, the client's got to know the economics involved here as well to say, is this going to work for me? Right, right. Now, is how adaptable is this technology? Could you know to to up to this point, we've been discussing its applicability towards, uh, say, a single facility. Could this be utilized in a, for argument's sake, a subdivision where it would heat and cool a multitude of homes or? Uh, um, you know, a large, a large apartment building. I know we've discussed, you know, the commercial aspect, but how does how does that work? Does it does it work for those types of developments? Um, I would say definitely. Uh, again, it's on a case by case, not one size fits all type of basis. Okay. But uh, that's something that is um, currently happening across the U.S. It's definitely happening across the world. I know Sweden uh, does that, where they have. Um, district heating and cooling mm -hmm. um much like a you know you pay suff county water authority here for drinking water um you do the same thing in sweden for heating and cooling um and they call it a campus system or a district-wide system um we're involved in a couple of them with some of our Correct. clients yeah um, we've done campus systems where mm -hmm. it heats and cools multiple buildings or we're looking at a few more um it's it's totally doable it is it is being done it has been done and as Dan said, sometimes it gets set up as you know a district system or almost like a, a utility company. Right. You know, and very we, interesting. And we have um, 
We have one client in particular that comes to mind. They would like to use geothermal heating and cooling across their whole campus. Mm -hmm. They don't have the money to do it, to renovate all their buildings um, right now. So they, they have asked for kind of a roadmap to get them there, um, where we would where they'd be willing to do construction on maybe one or two out of the dozens of buildings they have in the short term. And we would be able to work with them to ensure that, you know, once we have those two buildings done, mm -hmm. um, that we have adequate means to hook up future buildings to that same uh, loop to speak in, you know, closed loop. This is a closed right. loop system for this client. So uh, if you could picture, you know, a lot of buildings and um, wherever they have open space to drill or to bury um, closed loops, they they would have those sprinkled throughout where they can. So, um, you know, the more diversity you add to a system mm -hmm. in this fashion, if you you know you could have a building that's cooling, another one that's heating, um, the more generally the more diversity you add, the better the efficiency um, because you could essentially share your energy between buildings without putting it, without pumping it through the ground at that time. And then you do have the ground to temper the, uh, the fluid and the temperature that's going through those, those geothermally connected buildings. Okay. So there is adaptability. There is the ability to, if you put in a given system in the future, it could be expanded if the, um, land and or, uh, acreage is available. To, uh, to, to, to allow that to happen. Definitely. Okay. And then from an expense perspective, Paul, you alluded to it before, is there a, a general number where, you know, so this is, this is uh, tends to be initially, the initial investment tends to be more expensive than traditional systems, heating and cooling systems. Um, is there a percentage? Is it 10% more, 5% more? Is it, is it, is it, uh, project-based? It's really project-specific, uh, and that's it's hard to answer, you know, okay. because each site is unique, you know. Each client and owner has unique conditions. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it could cost sometimes almost the same, all right, and it could cost sometimes almost double, okay. you know. So it's it, there's, a, there's a wide range, you know, and it, it, it depends on a lot of variables, and that's why you need to do your homework up front to figure out what those variables are and what that cost difference is, what it means in terms of cost difference. Um, is there any? And, and then the, the, the big thing is, okay, great. We run our energy models. How much less energy am I going to use to heat and cool right. this facility or facilities? And then you compare it to the, the tr traditional, you know, and, and your electric and gas and oil costs. And you look at what the, the difference is and then what my payback period is, is to, 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 to make that money back on what I had to lay out initially in terms of capital. And then once that's all recouped, so to speak, you, you know, it's savings time. Dan, are there uh, incentives available from agencies in New York State or nationally for this type of uh, development? Yes. Yes, there's both. Um, NYSERDA actually offers a 26% tax credit um, between now and the end of 2022 um, to save on your capital costs of the project. Mm -hmm. And I believe that goes down to 22% um, in 2023. And it may go away after 2023. I have a feeling it'll be extended again. Mm -hmm. um, so that's at the federal level. And then at the, or I'm sorry, that's at the state, state level. And then um, there's also local incentives. I know PSEG uh, out here on Long Island, Con Edison, National Grid, they all offer um, different types of incentives to help pay for these systems, both upfront and, uh, and long-term. And there are new... Um, new players as far as people that will loan you money to pay for these systems. Um, 
and that's that's generally at the uh, the very local level. Understood. And I have uh, another question: How did the how does geothermal or the application of geothermal technology integrate with other environmentally friendly uh, energy applications? Uh, solar jumps to mind. Hey, absolutely, um, Nick. Now uh, you're talking going like that whole everyone's got that net zero concept. Right. You know, that's what that's what I was getting to. And yeah, of course. You know, um, the, the beauty of geothermal is is we don't need the wind to blow or the sun to shine. Right. Right. We're down in the earth, and it's, the earth is the earth. Right. For, for as long as we've been here and hopefully for a much longer time than that. Uh, but on cloudy days, you know, or at night, you're not getting a whole lot out of your solar system. Or on days when it's, you know, pretty calm out, we're not seeing a lot of wind, you may not, your turbines may not be spinning, so you're not generating a lot of electricity that way. But uh, assuming that they're working great together, you know, say solar or wind or whatever, and you are generating electricity, that's all we need is a little bit of electrical power, you know, a little mm -hmm. electrification to run some pumps. Whether it's a closed-loop system, it could be circulator pumps, or an open-loop, it might be a, a well pump. But, if, you know, we can couple that with a, with a, a source that's going to actually, you know, make its own electricity. You know, you're, you're heading down towards that net zero path. Which that's is, really neat. Uh, yeah, a lot of clients are interested in that, too. Uh, a lot of places are, um, you know, implementing that, experimenting with that, and, uh, you know, trying to make it work. And it's, you know, it's, it's there. That's excellent. That's excellent. Yeah, it's very uh, super dependable, like Paul just mentioned. Um, and just something I wanted to mention about that is, you know, air source heat pumps. Uh, you probably have seen them a lot lately. Um, split systems, a lot of people call them. Um, those are just like they sound, air source heat pumps. You know, when you are trying to clear your house down and it's 90 degrees in July, um, you want to remove the heat from your house. Right. If you have an air source system, the heat is not really going to move that easily from your 90 degree house to a 90 degree, you know, outside air temp. Um, but when you have geothermal, you're still going to get that 55, 60 degree water that the heat from your house will be rejected into, uh, moved to the ground. So um, what I'm saying is geothermal, you get um, the most efficient type of system when you need it. Is this all based on the, and, and I was a political science major, so forgive my ignorance. Heat goes to cold or cold goes to heat? It, it basically engineering 101, right? Shit flows downhill, right? We're going to go from <laughs> high to low. That's generally the way things happen. Okay. So, you know, hot's going to want to go towards the cold. So right? in that regard, that's, that's, that's the basis of this system and how it, and, and how it works. It's a, a cornerstone. I don't want to say in terms of the heat. Yeah, and cold. You're, you're, you're oversimplifying it, and I'd rather have a mechanical engineer in the room to explain this to okay. you. But essentially, you know, okay. we're, we're, we're moving heat around, you know. Right. I'm just alluding to what Dan's saying in terms of the air versus... Uh, not being as efficient as, as the use of the water. Right, right. And I mean, what I was really getting at is when you need it the most on the hottest day of the year, it's going to be the most effective deliver for you. Whereas, you know, his uh, air to source. air is, yeah, it's, it's going to be struggling to right. keep up on those hot, hot and, days. And you're going to be using a lot of energy. Correct. Correct. And that's, that's what really, that's the basis of, of this, of this approach in the system. If, if correct me if I'm wrong is to reduce energy reliance. To make us that's one of them. Get us sustainability. Towards, get us towards yeah. net zero, right? Yes. Yeah. Geothermal will, um, you know, like Paul mentioned, if if your electricity is coming from, say, PV on site or a renewable source, um, you could easily cut your carbon emissions because you're using the ground. You're not using a cooling tower or boiler or natural okay. gas, anything like that. And um, something else too, I I know I mentioned diversity. Um, when you have 
you know, I'll use the classic example of let's say you have an ice rink facility where you're constantly cool. m- making ice, constantly cooling. Um, you're going to have a lot of excess heat. Um, what could you do with it? You could uh, integrate it with your domestic hot water system. Um, so you could take that heat that's normally wasted and use it to further cut costs on your facility. Um, if you have loading docks outside, you could um, use snow melt, you know, essentially radiant floor heating if you need it somewhere in the building. But if you need it outside, if you need, have ADA ramps, if you have a handicap, um, you know, accessible parking and uh, required, you could put snow melt under there. And, and that helps get rid of this load imbalance. Um, you know, if you're constantly cooling, you're going to need somewhere to put that heat. And if you could put it, you know, um, in your pavement or in your ramps where you'd be spending the money to shovel right. the snow anyway or, or dump chemicals on it or whatever, um, you don't have to do that. In terms of geothermal technology, how can it be applied on Long Island or in the region and to what type of facilities? Yeah, Nick, we, we at PW Grocer, we've applied it to many, many different types of facilities. Uh, they're very diverse from the small residential home to the large residential home. Uh, to office buildings, to uh, industrial facilities, to hospitals, uh, to museums, to churches, to cathedrals. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, basically, it's, I don't want to say it's unlimited, but, you know, we've done other things, municipal type applications, uh, police stations or firehouses, you know, any place that's going to have a, a heating and cooling load that's not going to just essentially be dominated in one direction. And even when it is, um, I mentioned industrial facilities. Mm-hmm. We've worked on one where they have they need cooling 12 months out of the year, you know, and, and it's geothermal. Right. Um, so it, and it can be you know and it can be scaled up to meet just about any size facility. Um, there are constraints. You know, you need to have the right amount of land to put something like this in, um, and the right type of geology and hydrogeology and all and all that, which we discussed earlier mm-hmm. as part of the feasibility. But the types of facilities and the, the types of owners and clients, you know, it, it's it's very diverse. You know, um, you know, just schools alone. You know, we've right. done public schools, private schools, uh, higher education, meaning you know, colleges and universities. Right. Um, it, it's it's it, it goes on and on and on. And, you know, and we haven't, as PW Grocer, just been limited to Long Island and New York City. Right. We're throughout the Northeast, um, down as far as like Baltimore area. Uh, we've got projects out in you know the Midwest. Mm-hmm. And beyond, even at right. this point, with with geothermal, um, you know, and it ranges from public to private. And we're we're even looking now at a uh, you know a federal right. level type of application for it. So it's it's diverse, you know, very very diverse in terms of you know who is using it, who is applicable for. Um, but the main thing is, is you know, I, and I caution everybody, just do your due diligence up front. Right. You know, make sure you're you're going through the the right steps. It's as I said earlier, it's not one size fits all. Right. Um, we've had to talk clients out of this before, um, where they just it was not a good fit, and right. they 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 basically had the system you know ninety percent designed and ready to go to construction. Right. You know, and it's it's not a good situation when we get brought in at that point. But um, you know, better late than never, I suppose. Right. You want to add anything to that, Dan, in terms of, you know, who's using these types of systems, who we've done them for? Um, a little bit. I know I know I'd mentioned St. Pat's Cathedral, you know, uh, and Nick's earlier question about what do you eliminate on site. I mean, in terms of St. Pat's, if you're familiar with it, they don't have any they don't have a roof to put anything on. Uh, they have the spires. They hardly have any flat roof. So um, not to say they didn't have any other choices, but geothermal is a perfect fit for them. Right. Uh, both in terms of what they needed, what they wanted to get out of it, the long-term 
uh, benefits of it. I know that the, a lot of the piping that gets installed in the ground, they warranty it uh, 50 years. It'll usually last 100 plus. Right. Um, and then just to move, I guess, east out of the city, um, thinking about um, an open loop site that we have, open loop geothermal at a site that we have in Glen Cove, Glen Cove Hospital. Um, there's actually two separate geothermal systems on that same site. One of them is about 650 gallons a minute, serving one part of the hospital, and another is about 200 gallons a minute, 180, uh, serving a, a different part of the hospital. But um, you know, the hospital only uses those for cooling, and they right. and they only use them um, during the, you know, during the, I guess what's becoming earlier in the year and later in the year with the the shoulder seasons. But um, it wor- it works great for them. They were able to eliminate cooling towers mm-hmm. um, by, you know, using this technology. And um, we we do have a, you know, a contract with them where we do go in a couple times a year to make sure um, they're not pulling in any salt water. They're, right. they're not. We're not seeing any temperatures uh, that we we shouldn't be anticipating. Um, and, uh, you know, the water tables where we where we assume it would be. Um, and, you know, everything at Glen Cove has been. It's been challenging, but it's uh, you know it's still doing what they need the system to do there in terms of cooling. Um, and then to go even further out east, we would have let's see, we we've done a lot of um, residential systems out east. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of them are closed loop. When you say out east, you're, you're referring to the east end of Long Island. Yes, okay, understand. Um, where some of those residences could be passed off as commercial buildings. Right. <laughs> uh, so they're quite large, but. Um, you know, as I mentioned, you could get the tax breaks with any of the geothermal systems, right. but that's uh, the clients out there really mm-hmm. enjoy the tax breaks. But they do really also enjoy the fact that they don't have to hear anything or look at anything. Right. Um, they don't have the split units I mentioned on the side of the house. They don't have condenser units on the side of the house. Um, you know, everything in the inside of the building, you know, it's not exactly the same as a conventional system, but it's similar. But everything on the outside of the building is different because it's instead of being, you know, the condenser on the side of the house, it's, uh, you know, could be a series of, of closed loops drilled, you know, 500 feet, uh, sometimes deeper. But usually we like Paul mentioned with the permitting, we like to keep it under 500 feet. So, um, yeah, that just takes us through the three types. But okay. uh, open loop, closed loop, you know, not commonly found um, in Manhattan where where you're contending with that competent rock. Different type of substrate. Well, I just do want to add, you know, like at, at PWGC, what's what's nice about our firm with geothermal systems is we have engineers and we've got geologists. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's almost the, the, the perfect combination to, to work on these types of systems as far as the, the feasibility, the design, the permitting, certainly with the construction, mm-hmm. the startup, troubleshooting. Um, you know, and the list of services that, you know, we can provide for these types of systems just goes on and on and on. Um, but again, it, it comes down to the, you know, that symbiotic relationship we have at PWGC between our engineering and, and, right. and environmental staff, which is hydrogeologists and geologists and environmental scientists and, you know, all the different types of engineers we, we, we employ and work with as well. And we also do work closely with mechanical engineers, right. you know, outside the firm to do right. the, the inside portion of the building. Right. So it's it's it is a it's, we've got we've worked on some really really successful projects with some really great teams, um, and you know there are many more to come. We've got a bunch lined up, and we're we're really looking forward to getting starting on start on a few of them. Um, you know, and we're also working on some older systems too that mm-hmm. that need some maintenance, uh, need some troubleshooting, need need a little TLC if you will. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's not set it and forget it. 
you know, as I've said before, you, you got to keep an eye on these systems. Um, they are different than your traditional or conventional systems. So even the, the facility staff, the owners, their, their folks need to be aware of what these are, how they work. So there's a little bit of, uh, you know, bringing these, those folks up to speed on, on, on what this is and, you know, how to maintain them as well. At what point does PWGC get involved with these developments? Yeah, sure. And a great question. Um, generally, we, we we like to get involved in uh, early on as possible. Say, like a developer comes in and you know he's he's got a site. He wants to put up, say, like a you know a, a small residential high rise type of situation or an apartment building, if you will. Um, you know, we'll be involved with the architectural team, the mechanical guys. You know, early on do the due diligence, you know, before you get too far down the track and say, yeah, this is the way I want to go. This is what I'm going to do. Um, you don't just go ahead and do it, you know, get somebody knowledgeable in there to, to begin with, to, to, to go through, you know, whatever necessary testing, investigation, uh, you know, and identify any types of constraints, mm-hmm. work on some of these energy models, Dan has described, you know, to see, you know, how's this going to work? Is it going to work? You know, um, which systems are best for my site or which one is the best for my site Um, and are there going to be any other issues that might come up down the road like I said contamination Mm -hmm. you know water quality water chemistry all important geology hydrogeology um, your site constraints in terms of setbacks what the system is going to be next to or near to you know identify all this stuff up uh, up front as as early as possible you know so Mm -hmm. before you get too far even into the design phase of things Right. You know, um, but the, the key is, is to get us in there probably as soon as you, you're starting to identify this is the type of building I want to put up this many square feet or, or, the, or this tall. And, you know, you're starting to get a handle on what the, 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 the energy loads are going to be in terms of heating and cooling. In essence, the earlier, the better. Absolutely. Yes. And oftentimes the building energy modeling exercise can uh, let a developer or designer know you know, if I if I upgrade my glass windows, if I change the orientation of the building a little bit, you could save, you know, 10, 20 percent in heating and cooling uh, costs. Understood. Gentlemen, this was truly an interesting discussion on the application of geothermal technology here on Long Island and, and, and throughout the country. Uh, I'd like to thank you for, for a very interesting discussion. Again, joining us today was uh, PWGC President and CEO Paul Boyce. Senior Engineer Dan Sergerson, um, Marketing Director Nick Anastasi. And again, if you'd like to listen to this podcast at a later point, you can visit our website at pwgrocer.com backslash podcast or follow us on social media. Thank you. Thank you.